Greetings this morning in the worthy name of our loving, unconditional, loving Lord Jesus. Welcome each one of you here, and I want to bless everyone who's had a part in the service so far, the children, the blessing, Brenda, that was a blessing, and uh, Ethan, that was a blessing too. I um, thought of the unconditional love and how you made a distinction between grace and love, and I had to think about that. I'm not done thinking about that. I actually think grace and love actually over overlap some, but they're not the same, so uh, I have to think about that. So thank you very much for that for that uh, thoughts this morning. I uh, was going to read some verses about fathers because I do not have a Father's Day message. <laughs> I thought I'd read a few verses, but I think we have been well instructed this morning. I don't think I could improve on it. So, um, thank you very much. The title that I have this morning is Unapologetic Christians. Unapologetic Christians. Let's just pause for a word of prayer before we move on. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you for your abundant love to us. Thank you, Lord, for the many blessings you give to us. Church, family, salvation, food, and just many, many blessings we have. We just pray this morning as we open your word, as we seek you, to break the bread of life for us this morning. We look to you, Lord, to give us direction. Open the bread and to feed us, to strengthen us, and to equip us, and to encourage us. And I pray, Lord, you would do that this morning. We look to you, and, um, and we trust you that you care for us, and you love us, and that is your desire. So, Lord, I pray, as I was prayed already, let your words be spoken this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I also want to mention the children's lesson. Appreciate that as well. Simon, the vendor, was in a city in the Netherlands in the year 1553. Simon the Vendor, that word has become Simon Kramer today. But he was there selling his wares underneath a canopy in the market in that city. And it so happened there was an impromptu uh, procession came in to the city. It was a lavish display display of piety and authority by the local clergy. And they came through the market, and everyone, they would carry these, what they called a consecrated wafer, and when you carried a wafer, everybody needed to bow to it. And Simon wouldn't bow. He had left Catholicism for the Anabaptist faith and practice, and he considered the bread made Christ's sheer idolatry. His customers and his fellow vendors pleaded with him to kneel down, just kneel and save your life. But he refused. Well, he was spotted as a potential heretic, a suspected heretic, and he was 
quickly tried and sentenced to death. And in a few days, he was burned at the stake. I have always admired unapologetic people. People who are strong. Such as, and, and we, we, we all do. Look at Daniel in the scripture. And how he would refuse to bend to the um, to the de- unreasonable demands and and uh, given to his God uh, given or rather compromise his belief in his God. Also, the three Hebrew children Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which has a very vibrant example. Stephen, there in the New Testament. Preached the word, told the people. I think he had unconditional love to them, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He told them what they needed to hear and what they needed to do, though they didn't want to hear it. And they didn't want to do it. So, Daniel and the three Hebrew children, they were delivered by their God. Stephen was not. Neither was uh, Simon the Vendor. But they were just as unapologetic. Now, the dictionary definition of unapologetic is a heart uh, is not acknowledging or expressing regret. On the surface, it means you have done something and you don't regret having done it. You don't regret or you don't pull back from a position or a decision. But the action, of course, points to a heart, a heart that is unapologetic, a life that does what it does with no regrets, a Christian who knows what he believes and is faithful and is faithful to that, even under tremendous opposition. Here are some cinnamons to unapologetics. And this brought the word out. It's absolute. Out and out. True blue. Firm. Unshakable. Staunch. Steadfast. Committed. Devoted. Dedicated. Loyal. Faithful. Unswerving. Unwavering. Unfaltering. Unashamed. Would you agree with me that that does describe our Lord Jesus? Would you agree with me that he was unswerving, unwavering, loyal, committed, devoted? And we say, yes, that was our Lord Jesus. How about the early apostles? Were they unswerving and loyal and committed and devoted? And we say, yes. What about the early Christians? And we look at many of them as what we know, and they were the same way. Then we ask, well, what about modern Christians? Are they committed, loyal, absolute, staunch, steadfast, unshakable? And then we can ask the question, well, are we? Unshakable, staunch, committed. And then we go to, well, am I that person? Now, these descriptions of unapologetic doesn't actually describe or determine that what a person believes is correct or is right or is wrong. It just describes that whatever he believes, he is dedicated to it. An atheist can be unapologetic. So can whatever you want to put in there. Anybody can be unapologetic to their belief system. 
and those descriptions that I had about through and through, absolute, firm, unshakable, can seem to describe a certain human personality, such as the extroverted, type A, um, outspoken Peter. It seemed to describe a personality. But actually it doesn't, because was Peter unshakable and unmovable and unwavering? No. What what we're describing is something a little deeper. A quiet and a reserved and a private type of person can be just as unapologetic as an outspoken person about his position and his speech and his actions. They get expressed differently, but underneath it's not done with less courage or less conviction. Recently, I drove south on 81 towards Harrisburg, and I saw one of those cam billboard signs. And there was a statement that said, who is Jesus? Read Matthew's gospel. Okay, that's that's interesting. I, I, I made note of that. that. That's a good thing. Read Matthew's gospel. Well, in about a mile further, there was another one, Cam Billboard. And it's this one stated that real Christians love their enemies. And below is that number to call. Now, that's a truth that Jesus taught, and it's found in Matthew's gospel, and it's found in Luke's gospel, too, like we heard this morning. But... Real Christians love their enemies is a bold and a controversial statement, especially in today's climate. And it's, but there it is presented right out to the public to see, and then it has a number to call, and everybody that goes by there can look at that and then can call that number. And somebody sitting somewhere in somewhere or in their home, wherever they are, gets the call. Somebody is devoted and dedicated and loyal enough to open himself up to that kind of challenge and possibly ridicule. And the truth can be defended graciously and gently and firmly, unapologetically, with courage and with conviction. So this morning, I asked a question. Are you an unapologetic Christian? Do you know what you believe? Do you believe it firmly? Do you experience opposition for what you believe and do and say? And then do you remain firm in that opposition? Are you an absolute, out and out, through and through, firm, unshakable, and staunch, and steadfast, and committed, and devoted, and dedicated, and unswerving, loyal, faithful, unwavering, unfaltering, unashamed Christian? If the Lord Jesus was like that, I think we probably could be as well, should be as well. This morning we want to look at three points that are necessary for us to be unapologetic. The first two are foundational points that you actually cannot avoid. And then the third one is built on top of them. And that one will vary significantly in different people. And these three points are not exhaustive. It's the three that I thought of. But I want you, in fact, this is your assignment. You think a point that I missed. And you share what you think also is needed for us to be this kind of person, okay? Bring out the point that I miss, and then we can learn together. 
So why are some Christians strong and unshakable, and why are some weak and easily swayed? Number one, point number one, in uh, this is really hard to get the whole point in a few words, but the point number one is they're going to have is confidence in God. The best way I could come up with it. And to uh, look at that, we're going to turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Confidence in God, which is necessary to be unapologetic Christian. Psalm 73, verse 1 and 2, we'll read first. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such that are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, and my steps had well nigh slipped. How's that for an unapologetic man? Do you know what well nigh slipped means? It means I almost lost my faith. There was a crisis of faith going on in this man's heart. There was a time in his life when everything he thought used to be up looked like it was down. And everything he thought was down looked like it was up. The way he understood the world to function, the way he thought it should function, the way he understood that it should function, it wasn't functioning that way. In fact, it was functioning opposite of what he thought it should. And of course, what's the issue? And we'll keep on reading here. Why, why, what was going on here? Why was he having this crisis of faith? Verse 3, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So these were foolish people. They were wicked people, but they were prospering. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compassed them about as a chain, and violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt, and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh about through the earth. Therefore, his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out of them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Asaph is the one who wrote this song. And his concept of God and his justice is that he blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked. Isn't that what God's word said? I mean, the Hebrew scriptures If you do what's right, I will bless you. If you do what's wrong, I will curse you. And, and, and the concept, that's how, that's who God is. He had the concept of Job's three friends. And I think he probably had a, a dose of the modern health and wealth gospel. I think he did. But as he looked across his local and maybe national landscape, and maybe it was also another country, I'm not sure where all he was viewing at, he, it didn't appear like it was, like it did, it wasn't like he expected. As he grew up in life, things made sense, but then there came a life when he, his, 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 his vision was broader, and he began to see, and he began to look, and he began to question, and he wondered, what is going on here? And it caused his heart to melt. Now, during this time, do you think he was a good witness to the Lord Jehovah? (laughs) Do you think he could 
Do you think he was, uh, during this time, he was inspired to write some songs of worship to the Jehovah God? Do you think he was? Do you think it would have been a good time for him to have a test like Daniel did at this time? Clearly something is wrong here. Verse 13. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hand in innocency. Talking about himself. All day long, all the day long, I've been plagued. And I've been chased in every morning. Verse 15. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should have offended against the generation of thy children. When I thought of this, it was too painful for me. So he's comparing his own unsatisfactory experience with the perceived carefree and prosperous and happy experience of the wicked, comparing them. But in verse 15, it was only in his heart. He wasn't talking to other people about it. At this point, it seemed like not. He knew he didn't want to falter the faith of God's children, his brothers and sisters in the Lord, or his fellow Israelites in this case. He had a conscientious heart, though it was a deeply troubled and confused heart. There's a paraphrase of verse 15 that I thought I would read here. If I had given in and talked like this, no, he was, he was writing here, these people, they prosper, I am chastened. If I had given in and talked like this, I would have betrayed your dear children. Still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache. Or a splitting heartache. Or a splitting faith ache. Whatever you want to put in there. So, we have a clear picture of his heart. He is not a rebel. He is far from a rebel. He, he wants to follow God, but he is confused in trying to understand. And it is a test of faith. Last Sunday, I shared in open mic time about uh, something I read in devotion the week before of, I think it's Deuteronomy 13, where God will test his people. Here comes a prophet. He gives a prophecy, and the prophecy comes true. But his prophecy is against the word of God. Now what do you do? Prophecy is a true prophet, but he's prophesying falsely. <laughs> God says, I put that to test you, to see if you will obey my word or whether you obey a man's voice. And he said, obey God. Christians today face tests. Why do bad things happen to good people? Now we know that is a theologically incorrect statement. <laughs> bad things do not happen to good people. Because you have to ask who is good. But we ask the question, why don't things go as planned? Why doesn't God answer my prayers? Why don't God's people get along with each other? Why do my children go astray? Why did this accident happen? Why did I have a terrible childhood? And for a time, we don't have answers. Jim Gould from Maine spoke at Harmony Bible School some years back. And when he was there, his wife had died three or four years prior, if I, my memory serves correctly. And he talked a little bit about that. He said he doesn't know why his wife got cancer and died. From what I understand, she was a gifted and a needed person. But she got cancer and died. She said none of the doctors or the nurses got saved through her ordeal. She died and as he looks back, he cannot see any reason why God would do that. But here he was, 
as a widower at a Bible school encouraging our youth to love and to follow his God. He was an unapologetic Christian to go through such an experience and to do that. Now, I'm not going to hunt down all the reasons I mentioned. Uh, that would be a message in itself. Why don't think it was planned and all those things. I'm just going to go back to Asaph. His test was, it appeared that God was not who he claimed to be. That's what it appeared like to him. And if, if God doesn't uh, bless the righteous and doesn't curse the wicked as I thought he does, what else is not true about God? I mean, it puts him in all terms of turmoil. And uh, we can understand that. In fact, maybe we can understand it better than we would like to. And in verse 17, we'll read there. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. I went into the sanctuary. One day, he went into God's sanctuary to meditate, and he thought about the future of these evil men. And the world righted itself again. All of a sudden, things made sense. Faith came back. And conviction came to him to say, why did I ever doubt? And it overflowed and he confessed his sin and he rested again in his God. That's the experience of Asaph. To be an unapologetic Christian today, one who can confront evil, whether it's offensive or defensive, one who can stand when attacked and ridiculed and persecuted. To be a Christian in those circumstances, we need to have explicit trust and faith and fellowship with the living God. See, in, in, in that place where Asaph ended up at, in that place we can have enormous confidence and security which is actually needed, that foundational stability, a place to stand on. What does it say there in Hebrew and Ephesians 6? Having done all to stand, there's a place to stand. There's a place to fight. You got the armor, but in the evil day, stand. And there's a place, and you will need to have a place to stand on that evil day. Some of us have ongoing doubts about the goodness of God. Some of us. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just speaking to you all, and I'm assuming there's some of us that have ongoing doubts about the goodness of God. He does not run our life as we expected he would. We have questions that are not answered. We hear the skeptics and the atheists attack. God and his word, and it can put seeds of doubt in our heart, and we are not sure. Well, if you're in that situation this morning, do one or both of two things. First, do what Asaph did. Go into your sanctuary and stay there a little longer than you normally do. Immerse yourself in the word. Meditate and pray. And you can read other good books. I, I remember, I think we said it at Brothers Meeting, but um, up in the Pottsville ministry, there was a Orthodox Christian that's been interacting with the, with the youth, with the ministry there. 
but he still liked the Orthodox faith, and he thought that 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 the good thing, those images and those those things, they're they're helps. You know, we don't worship them; they're just they're just to help us, and a number of other issues like that. And someone gave him the book, uh, David Perchel's book, the Kingdom that turned the world upside down, and he said that book ruined me. And so, if you're in this case of doubt, you need a good book to ruin you, (laughs) actually to set things right side up again. So, one thing you do is go to your sanctuary, like Asaph did. And the second one you can do is speak to someone else. Speak to a brother or a sister, someone that you perceive is a strong strong uh, Christian and to confess Share and unburden your heart. That's an application of Hebrews, that verse in Hebrews, where forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Assembling, of course, is gathering together, but the whole idea is that you interact with each other, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And the deceitfulness of sin is that unbelief in God, one of them. So, the first point in being an unapologetic Christian is having full confidence in the true God. Full confidence in the true God. Maybe that's a better way to put it. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Second point of being an unapologetic Christian, one who can stand up in opposition, is a clear conscience. This one is also foundational. There's a verse in Proverbs that I will read. You don't have to turn there, just one verse. verse. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now, the Proverbs are not promises. It helps us to understand the Proverbs uh, and this portion of Scripture if we understand that. An example is, a soft answer turneth away wrath. It's a statement about human nature. If you understand in your mind that a soft answer turns away wrath, you have wisdom. If you actually act it out when someone comes to you with a wrathful position and you respond softly, now you are actually a wise man. Not only do you have wisdom, you are a wise man because you are acting wisdom out. But the verse does not promise that the wrath will be turned away. It's a general principle of wisdom. So if you are a righteous person, it is not automatically guaranteed that you will be a bold person. But there is a principle here, and it's a principle we're going to look at this morning. A righteous person has a clear conscience. We would all agree with that, right? If you don't have a clear conscience, you're probably, depending on your definition of righteous, I suppose. But a righteous person has a clear conscience. A righteous person fears God more than man. A righteous person does not dread detection or exposure actions. He has nothing to be ashamed of. He may bid farewell to doubt and insecurity because he is living above board he can be bold like a lion. Now, the wicked person is the opposite. His conscience is not clear. So he has a sense of foreboding because of that. And he has some secret things hidden that he fears could be exposed or revealed. And and what all that means and entails if that would happen. Even when he has no reason to fear man, 
he has, he's not free from the feelings of uneasiness. Conscience doesn't allow him to rest. So, he is restless and unsettled. And this is generally true of the wicked. Now, there's, there's ways that the wicked deal with that. And one of them, of course, some of them is ignorance. Some of them is deception. And then others, it just simply drown it out. You know, a polygraph is a lie detector machine that tests your physiological, physiological, I can't say the word. It, your physiology, it, cha- it detects changes in your body when you're asked questions. And it operates under the principle that when you're asked a question that you want to lie, you don't want to reveal the truth, they ask you a question and you're not going to reveal the truth, but you're going to lie that it stresses you. And that stress can be measured in the way they hook these machines up. And if you, so um, you will be more stressed when you lie than when you're not lying. Now, someone who had a clouded conscience has a low-grade uneasiness about the future. Sure, things are okay now, but what will happen when the chickens come home to roost? What will happen when the sowing is finished? I remember in my second grade, you remember how those memories stick with you. In my second grade, we had been given a, a, a... book, a workbook at the beginning of the school year, and we were told that we're supposed to do the school book on our own. It was not part of the regular curriculum, but not part of a regular class, but you're supposed to fill this out throughout the school year. And I was slothful. (laughs) I didn't do it. And every once in a while, I think about that book. Oh, yeah, mm, I should do it, but I didn't. And here comes the last week of school. Ah, I didn't do that book. Here comes the last day of school. And we are cleaning our desk out. And I don't want to bring this book out. I'm afraid this teacher is going to call me on the carpet for not doing this book. She had no idea. She, she, there was no follow-up. She had not even in her mind to have any follow-up. But I was fleeing when no man was pursuing because I had this conscience. I knew I didn't measure do something I was supposed to do. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. Contrast that with a person who knows he is a child of God. He knows his sins are forgiven. He has that vital connection with God. And in such a way, I know he's not perfect. Even though he's on the pathway of sanctification, even though he fails, even though he sees areas in his life that he he sees needs in his life, and yet he is up to date. That man is a can be a bold man. He is honest with his needs with God and with others where it's appropriate. If you are called to a polygraph test for an incident you are innocent of, you're not necessarily very stressed out about it. You can answer those questions honestly. You can be at ease. You might even be challenged. You say, you are lying. And you say, no, that's the truth. And you can be at rest. You are as bold As a lion, a clear conscience is tremendous. Hypocrisy and deceit will destroy a heart's unapologetic confidence. Many, many years ago, and you don't know this person, so I can talk, but we had a maid in our house many years ago uh, after a baby, and... um, after some time, I'm not sure when we discovered whether it was when she was still there or whether it was afterwards, we discovered that she went to our freezer at times and she sneaked some sweets or ice cream or whatever. She, she did things behind our back in our home. Now, we didn't care if she did it 
Uh, in fact, if she would have asked, we probably would have let her have some of that. I, I don't know if she was deprived. I don't think so. But what do you think was going on in her heart? And she went out there and did that, and then she come back and served us. You think she had a clear heart, conscience, clear face, open face? Maybe she lived so long with a clouded conscience that she didn't um, know what a clear one was anymore. So I want to go down that road a little bit here this morning, a little bit down that road. Young people. Now I'm going to pick on young ones, but it's for every one of us. When you go shopping, do you buy things your parents don't know about? Do you listen to things that is hidden or watch things or read things or fantasize things that you wouldn't want anyone to know? You know, honesty and dishonesty develop actually into habits. It's it, uh, that song that goes, one victor will help you another to win, is, is exactly true here. Because the more you do of one or the more you do of the other, the easier it is to develop that pathway. The more you practice, the more natural it becomes. If we habitually do something undercover, even something that you might not consider wicked, it's still doing something to you. It's still forming your character. But most things done undercover not only warp our character, but they also defile us. This past week, I read a blog titled, Porn is Slowly Killing Evangelicalism. And in this pretty long blog, there was a lot of statistics given about how many people are caught in it, including youth pastors and pastors. And one of the astounding statistics there was that uh, of non-religious folks, 76% consider porn to be morally acceptable. That's amazing, but what was more amazing is 22% of those who said religion is very important to them, 22% of them said it's morally acceptable. Pornography is not morally acceptable. Purity of heart and mind and practice is essential for a true unapologetic Christian. I I know I heard it already. How many I'll let that go. Yeah. Now, I understand the battle for purity, young people or men. I understand that. It is a formidable foe. Porn and impure habits actually change the structure of our brain. And that desensitize, these sensitization occurs and our minds become warped in our views. For everyone here who is in the battle, I'm going to speak for those who are in the battle, and that's probably most of us men, and I don't know about you ladies, but for most of us in the battle but are confessionally open about it, to someone, I want to encourage you. If you are actively resisting and actively replacing bad habits with good ones, God bless you. Keep on. 
There is a disputed ending of a speech given by Winston Churchill at a boys' school. Disputed because it's disputed what actually he said, but this is the disputed speech. He was talking to boys, and he was not talking particularly about this issue, but I like the the quote. He said, young men, never give up. Never give up. Never, 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 never. That's how you make emphasis, right? God says in Hebrews 12, 3 to 4, For consider him, Jesus, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. This battle for purity is a necessary battle, and it cannot be circumvented, but it can be fought, and it can be won. And to be an unapologetic Christian, it has to be won. That's why I bring it here. Keep your conscience, clear your conscience, and keep it clear. Now, to those who are not honest about their condition, No one knows what you see or watch or do. You start and you stop and you start and you stop, but you're caught in a trap and you know it. I can seriously appeal for anyone in that situation to consider that path. If you're in the battle, good, but you're not I say it's a little hard because you are in the battle in one sense. But you may need to become open. If you don't, here's what happens. The longer, you, 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 our, our brains adjust to patterns in our lives. This happens to any habits. And the bondage will only get stronger. And so the question that I have for you is, If not now, then when? If not now, then when? Keep your conscience clear in relation to the government. Romans 13.5 says, Wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. You know, you shouldn't need to habitually slow down whenever you see a police car parked along the highway. Now, I, I know that sometimes I'm careless. I don't know exactly how fast I'm going, and I see that in the first, let off the throttle. <laughs> that happens. But you really should have a clear conscience in this area. For in 1 Peter, I'm going to read a few verses and then have an example. 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 16. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. And here's the verse. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And be ready always to answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, whereas to speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Live with a clear conscience with the surrounding culture, society that we live in. Live in such a way that you don't need to be, that they can't, if if they accuse you, it's a false accusation. I remember a farmer reading about a farmer who had a temp, had a problem with his temper. It was an ongoing problem. He, he struggled with it. He tried to overcome it, but he was struggling with it. And he had a salesman who was pretty negative 
against religion. An unbeliever of some kind. One day he was out in the barn and the cow did something that tripped him off. And he was in a, in a fit of rage. He beat the cow. And then he noticed that the salesman was at the door observing him. And the salesman said, see, I told you that bunch, that religion is a bunch of whatever. He was unfortunately rightly accused. And I know that we live, we live, we're in a, in the process of sanctification. And I know that we have failures. And I know that sometimes we speak to our children in ways that we wish we wouldn't have. And other things like that. I understand that. But to keep a clear conscience means, just like the other area, you don't give up the fight and you keep, you're open and honest about it. Pay your bills. Keep your word. Do what's right. Then, if men speak against you, calling you evil names or whatever, they may be ashamed of themselves, having falsely accused you when you've only done what's right and what's good. That's what God says. Remember, if God wants us to suffer, it's better to suffer for doing what's right than for doing what's wrong. So, back to being an unapologetic Christian. If we're going to advance into enemy territory, if we're going to be obedient to the call of evangelism and discipleship, we need to have clarity of conscience. And if we're going to withstand the opposition and challenge that comes because we are proposing an absolute and an ultimatum to the world that despises that, we need to have the settled assurance of uh, the condition of our soul with God. And that includes our conscience and our confidence of who God is. Okay, number three. And I struggle tremendously exactly how to put that thing in it, but I'm going to call it a mastered subject. <laughs> you understand a little bit. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Many of you could quote it. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is built on top of the other two, of knowing the true God and walking honestly with the true God. Now, understand the subjects to be unapologetic about in a real world. Paul was such a man. He was well-educated with a wide range of experience. And he could relate to many different types of people. First, he was an expert in the Hebrew scriptures. He could take the Hebrew scriptures and he could take it to anyone, any Jew, and he could explain clearly from the Hebrew scriptures and point them to Christ. He could do that. He was mastered in that. And he was, I would say he was unapologetic in that. I would say he was. <clears throat> Jesus did that as well as he interacted with the devil and with the Pharisees, with the Hebrew scriptures. But Jesus and Paul also related to people from other angles as well. Jesus understood logic when he said, a house divided against itself can't stand. And he said, those questions you know. Well, if I cast out devils by Beelzebub, well, who do your children cast them out? And he, he was mastered in some understanding of human, human uh, perspective and so on. Paul was a highly intelligent man, and God used him to write the book of Romans, which is a um, very logical book. Now, this morning... To illustrate my subject, I'm going to use largely the billboard evangelism, um, Christian age billboard evangelism, as an example. 
And it starts with this. How would you like to be on the team to answer those questions that come from people calling in after they see the billboard? Beyond reasonable doubt, Jesus is alive. That's what the billboard says. Someone calls up and asks, how can you tell me by without beyond reasonable doubt? How would you explain that to him? To an agnostic humanist. How would you explain to someone who's been taught that the Bible is just a man-made religious book? Can you provide reasons and examples why that's not the case? How do you know there is a God? How do you know what will happen to you after you die? Why was I created? Why is divorce and remarriage wrong? A mastered subject, unapologetic, being able to answer with confidence. And I'm going to reread that verse that I read in First Peter just at one verse, 315. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The first two points that we had today, having confidence in God and having a clear conscience, that's the sanctification of the God in your hearts. That's what that is. You sanctify the Lord God in your heart. You know him and you have a clear conscience. So he is sanctified in your heart. He has a place in your heart that no one else has. Those are the first two points. And then this, the rest of this verse is this point. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That word, give an answer, is the word apologia, which is where we get the word apologetics from. Now, here we have sort of an interesting English. English is an interesting language because I'm saying you're being unapologetic, but now we're going to use apologetics in the other sense, which is give an answer or give a reason. And Christian apologetics is a branch of Christian theology that aims to present historical, recent, and evidential basis for Christianity defended against objections. Uh, that's sort of a, but it basically, you are giving historical reasons, you are giving recent reasons, you are giving evidential reasons, to people who come. And you can also, I'm, I'm sure there's other reasons too, but that's basically what apologetics is in its narrow form. R.C. Sproul, quoting the first epistle of Peter, writes, The defense of the faith is not a luxury or an intellectual vanity. It is a task appointed by God that you should be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you as you bear witness before the world. And those individuals who have mastered various subjects and can unapologetically stand and defend, clearly defend that truth. I admire people like that. I usually like to be alongside one of them when we are in a situation like that. Now granted, we all will vary in our verbal and intellectual ability to do that. I, I, that this, this one here is, it's a continuum where some of us will be less able and some of us be more able. But God says to be ready. A youth was once with her family on a tour in a national park. I don't know, maybe it was, maybe it was the Grand Canyon. And the tour guide was taking them and explaining to the group 
about the various formations that are there, and he explained that these rock layers here are so many hundreds of millions of years old. And so she asked, put your hand up, and asked a question, how do you know? Well, we can tell by the fossils that we find in those rock layers. Okay. Okay. Later on in the tour, they were looking at some fossils, and he said these fossils are so many hundreds of millions of years old. And hands up, how do you know that? Well, we, we can tell how old the fossils are by, the, by what layers they are in the rocks. Okay. Uh, sir, isn't that circular reasoning? <laughs> she had mastered certain things, and she could actually observe inconsistency in that. That's what I'm talking about. Some study to be ready is a good thing. To be unapologetic. Common question to ask, how do we know there is a God? Why don't you believe in evolution? How do you know the Bible is true? How do we know that the correct books were put in the Bible? That's a big one nowadays. Canonization. Why does God allow evil? Why don't you participate in war and patronism? What is salvation? Why do you dress so strangely? Like I said, I don't know about you, but I admire people who have the ability to clearly give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in them in a wide range of subjects. I'm encouraged when an attack comes from someone that is, that is, whether, even, it could even be an honest seeker, but it's also someone who attacks Christianity or attacks you to have someone who is unflinchingly and firmly and clearly this unapologetic perspective give responses. I know I've been in a situation where I didn't do nearly as well as where those situations where emotions can actually start to rise. And, and it's especially so if you're not quite confident in your perspective. But it's okay to say, well, I don't know, but I can find out. That's okay also. So it first comes with having a clear understanding, just like, like, like Paul did at the Hebrew Scriptures. It first comes with having a clear understanding of the Word of God and the biblical worldview that emanates from such an understanding. Creation, the nature of man, the pathway of being right with God, all of those things that come out of Scripture. You know, we can study various issues in our society, but it, this is foundational. And I found this old saying that describes what we should know, and I, I'd like to read it. You've probably heard it before, but I thought it's very appropriate. This is what we need to know. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here is paradise restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is the grand subject, our good to design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill your memory, rule your heart, and guide your feet. Read it carefully, slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, read at your death, opened at the judgment, and remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility will reward the greatest labor and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. 
This is the Bible. So, as we are ready to give an answer to every man, that is the essential core. Acts 4.13, and then when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. The rest that we should know is just added on to that. It is good to study Islam from an apologetics book so you can understand their mindset. And with other religions and cults, it's, 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 it's a good thing to broaden your understanding and perspective because it gives you connecting points. I had a co-worker tell me one time directly, to me directly, said, Evolution, it's a proven fact. <laughs> well, in science, you don't prove anything. And it's definitely not a fact because it's changing all the time. <laughs> but uh, it's good to know about some things so you can have some responses to that. It's good to understand human nature and how it generally how it functions. It'll help us identi- identify a certain phenomenon when we see it. Only respond to that with biblical counsel, not with humanistic psychology. You don't need to and you shouldn't immerse yourself into their filth. I had um, someone up in New York City, one of the unloaders, receivers there, told me so what I thought of hoodlum. I, I, I couldn't remember. I can only remember hoodlum. It was another word, but it was something like that. I said, hoodlum? Hoodlum, yeah, hoodlum, hoodlum, hoodlum. Hoodlum. What, what do you think when you think of hoodlum? Well, what I think is somebody stabbing me in the back. Oh, don't you know about this movie? No, I never heard of that movie. <laughs> you don't have to go there to understand and have a relating. Now, I could have gone further. So why are you watching that? But I didn't. But you don't have to go in there a filth. I don't know what he was talking about, but he understood it very well, and I'm glad I didn't. Are you, am I, an unapologetic Christian? Do you have a settled confidence in the goodness of God? Is your conscience clear, and are you living above board? Are you studying the word, and the world to be equipped to answer those who ask. Those are the three questions, the three points that we have. And I invite other thoughts of what it is needed for a Christian to be an absolute, out and out, through and through, firm and unshakable and staunch and steadfast and devoted and committed and dedicated Loyal and faithful and unswerving and unwavering and unfaltering and unashamed Christian. And one last quote. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief of him. May God bless you.